0: everyone. Welcome to this week's episode of the Amateur Gourmet Podcast. I'm your host, Adam Roberts, the Amateur Gourmet. Before I get started about this week's episode, I want to let you know that I made nachos, the most incredible black bean nachos with pickled radishes and onions and chilies, and it has black beans, and it has tons of cheese, and it's incredible. I do it on a sheet pan, and it's on my new YouTube show, so go onto YouTube and search the amateur gourmet show and watch that video and be sure to like it subscribe share it i think you're gonna love it frankly um but maybe i just have a face for podcasting in which case welcome to this week's podcast this week's podcast is all about where to eat in new york you know i lived in new york uh when did i live in new york i lived in new york from 2004 to 2011 i also grew up there but mainly like as an adult I lived there for seven to eight years and ever since I moved to LA in 2011 people ask me hey I'm going to New York where should I eat and it's been a long time so I invited on the chief food critic for Eater New York Ryan Sutton I've been following him forever he's won a James Beard Craig Claiborne award for distinguished restaurant criticism in 2015 And he was also nominated for that award again in 2016. He's highly respected, but more importantly, he's really knowledgeable about all the exciting places to eat in the city. So without further ado, here is my talk with Ryan Sutton about where to eat in New York 2022. All right, well, I am here with the illustrious Ryan Sutton. Ryan, you and I have been circling each other for a long time. It's nice to finally sit down and talk to you.
1: Uh, it's nice to finally uh, sit down and talk to you as adam as well it's thanks for having me
0: yeah well i'm a big fan of your writing i feel, I feel like I went through different phases when I left New York when I moved to l a in terms of my attitude towards reading New York food media because that I, it I was sort of like the stages of grief you know where it's like denial and stuff so like I went through a period of like you know screw new york i don't need to read about that anymore, but now i'm back to like oh i miss I miss the the, um, the, you know, the things that New York has that LA doesn't have, which maybe that's a good place to start, you know, in 2022, what do you think is like, what still differentiates New York from all other cities? Oh gosh. Restaurant wise. <laughs> I know that's a hard one. That, yeah. that, that's a, a tough question to, uh, to answer. I mean, New
1: York has, has so much great stuff and, and even when it, it may not necessarily have in, in certain areas, some of the greatness that LA does. and And just by the same token, I'm it's, it's, it's been a couple of years since I've been to Los Angeles. Uh, I love the city and I, I miss it as well. And I, I constantly read you know uh, uh, a lot of great food media from, from Los Angeles and elsewhere in California. And, and we'll talk about that soon. But when I think about uh, New York City right now, uh, in addition to just being grateful that we're still here uh, and that we have mm-hmm. a city uh, and that so many of us uh, have gotten out at the other end of a, of a pretty devastating pandemic, uh, healthy or, or, or mm-hmm. reasonably healthy, uh, mm-hmm. I'm just excited to have restaurants, period. That said, um, modern Korean, uh, if we can go for one of the obvious examples, it, it uh-huh. is really, uh, I think, one of the exciting things about uh, eating out in New York City right now. Forgive the broad generalization, and this is a generalization I think other folks have made as well, uh, but when you know, one thinks of Los Angeles Korean, one largely, but not entirely, one largely thinks of you know, slightly more traditional regional uh, Korean, at least I think mm-hmm. they do. Whereas in New York City, we have some of that as well. But I, I think where the exciting things are happen, uh, happening are the the more modern... In creative side of things i'm talking about restaurants like uh atomix and attaboy by jp park and uh, all uh yeah park.
0: i'm glad you pronounced that because i was i called it atomics last time i was there but i never got to eat there and i'm dying to go but it's so hard to get a reservation it's tough to get a reservation
1: uh i remember when they released their next slot of bookings which i believe was for june just about a week or so ago and i'm reasonably sure everything sold out you know it, the reservations were released on a Sunday uh, and I think it probably mm-hmm. didn't take more than a, than a few hours for those to be snapped up yeah. so it's it's not a you know a, 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 a ticket master style situation where you have to <laughs> you know where you have to be there right when they're released uh, but you don't want to yeah. you don't want to dilly-dally too much either because uh, atomix or mix, and I'm, I apologize for mispronouncing that
0: no, 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 no. You say it right. I, I literally would just like, I took a gamble and just called it Atomics. Either way, it's, it's, a, it's a really cool seeming restaurant. So I'm glad you started out with that because that's one of those restaurants that it's like all the insider New York people are like, oh, you got to go there. Yeah.
1: And obviously that's, that's a, a bit of a splurge. Uh, I think after tax and services now included there, I believe it'll probably run you somewhere in the ballpark of, of $325. $325. Mm-hmm. But of course, you yeah, have other venues like uh, Simon Kim's uh, Coat, uh, which is expanding, mm-hmm. uh, I think, elsewhere. Uh, in the United States, you have a small team doing some pretty cool stuff in my uh, native Hell's Kitchen. If I can call it my native's Hell's Kitchen. You know, I grew up in <laughs> Long Island. Uh, Mari and Kochi, which are doing Korean hand rolls and, and Korean skewers.
0: Where in Long Island did you grow up, by the way? Because I grew up on Long Island, too.
1: So I grew up in, in uh, of course, when people think of Long Island, they think of the North Shore, of the, yeah. the Gold Coast and, and the South Shore, you know, you know, Long Beach, for lack of a better term. You think of out east, you know, where the fancy people live yeah. in the Hamptons. I grew up when i called the central shore which of course is not really a shore but i grew up in floral park <laughs> okay which um i think it's the birthplace of the the great composer john williams who nice. does a lot of great work for uh, uh for <laughs> steven spielberg yeah. so i grew up there and uh known for its thriving uh, south asian population uh, these days especially in the Queens side i'm technically because i was born in long island jewish i'm technically at a new york city born Human being. Wait, I think I was Island. born
0: there too. I might have been born in Long Island, Jewish. I was. I'm from Oceanside originally. Right on to the south shore. South shore, yeah. And I remember there was a Nathan's in Oceanside, so I have like a lot of memories of going to that. It's also funny. This is a sidebar, but the the sirens in the background just now are like the perfect background noise for this podcast. I love it. It's as uh, I'm glad you pointed that out because as a New Yorker, uh, sometimes I simply just just, just tune
1: that out. But uh, again, <laughs> no, you know, uh, back to the point of you know, I think what's exciting about uh, New York City right yes. now we, we think of we think of modern Korean and we not just within the framework of Korean cuisine or or East Asian cuisine. but What's exciting about it is that when one looks at the the broad spectrum of slightly more ambitious or slightly more expensive restaurants or forgive the term fine dining, uh, I would argue that the modern Korean spots are kind of. Uh, leading the charge on keeping things a little bit more creative, uh, as opposed to mm-hmm. more traditional. And that's not to say that you know, creative and modern and new are good, and traditional and real you know, rustic are, are bad. That's of course a, a false dichotomy. But that said, mm-hmm. in as much as that we want some you know diversity and differentiation and some progressivism in in our culinary communities on a variety of fronts, uh, I think what modern Korean uh, is doing is is really cool. Spe- especially, I just reviewed a place called a. Uh, Jumak, uh, not too far from Koreatown, uh, and they're doing some pretty neat stuff with integrating kind of sweeter flavors uh, throughout their savory menu. So, starting off a meal with, I don't know, a sweeter dill custard uh, topped with uh, topped with caviar—it's pretty tasty. It's by two former yeah. uh, pastry chefs who are, who are kind of leading the kitchen there. So, uh, modern Korean is is pretty fun, and, and we're lucky to have it.
0: Well, it's, it's interesting because it's like I left New York in 2011, and it feels like there are three major things that happened that really shifted the way the New York restaurant scene seems to have changed in terms of my memory of it. But it's the Me Too movement, because I think of places like the Spotted Pig, Del Posto, Babo, Bob- all that kind of stuff. Um, I think of... Black Lives Matter and that that whole period of sort of in terms of diversity and looking at diversity is, uh, you know, it seems like in terms of the restaurants that were at the forefront when I left, it seems like now even bringing up Korean food, like it feels like that's shifting. And then uh, finally, the pandemic, um, which, as you mentioned, vastly changed the scene. So I'm curious, like in terms of the past 10 years, I mean, which do you think has had the greater impact and how do you think the restaurant scene has changed the most over the past 10 years? Excellent question. Uh, I it, it's hard to say, oh, I would generally say that the, it's hard to
1: think of a single other event that's had a, a, a more consequential impact on the, the New York City hospitality industry than uh, the pandemic uh, in terms of, you know, you know, the human toll in terms of the labor toll uh, in right. as much as so many folks were out of work uh, for so long and in as much as it had a Uh, I think a profound impact on the way we all interact with restaurants on a, on a regular basis. You know, I think a lot of us, I I can't speak for, you know, uh, all eight or so million people uh, in New York city, Mm -hmm. uh, but I know I'm I'm personally that obviously I'm a food critic. And so it's my job to eat out on a pretty regular basis, both to to restaurants I'm excited about and I need, and I want to go to, and also to, you know, places that are assigned to me, which is also a good thing. You know, that's part of the job. It's not just about, you know, picking what we're excited about. But in as much as the pandemic, I think, changed a lot of dining habits. I, I know for myself that I'm not necessarily eating out as much uh, as I used to. And I, mm-hmm. I think that's just a, a product of having been, you know, at home, uh, either in, in New York City or with my parents on Long Island for, you know, the better part of the past two years. And so just from a, a behavioral perspective, I know I and I'm sure a lot of other New Yorkers are, are simply, you know, getting takeout more. Uh, cooking at home more. Um, and uh, for me, uh, that's not necessarily a, a, a bad thing. If mm-hmm. anything, I'm, I'm more excited than ever when I go to that restaurant on my own dime at whatever day that is in the week. I usually manage to do it once or twice when I'm not doing work-related, uh, work-related eating. And when I say I, I get to that local Cuban place on a, on a Friday night and they're playing, you know, live Latin music and I'm eating a nice plate of bacafita you know, with, you know, black beans and rice, a mojito or a daiquiri, whatever. Like that to me was almost pedestrian before the pandemic. And and now it feels like a special occasion. So that there's something Mm -hmm. exciting about that. But by the same token, there's also something exciting. And I want to say this carefully. There's also something exciting about not going out to eat. I value simply the the time I get to spend with, you know, my parents uh, in Oyster Bay on the North Shore of Long Island and maybe spending an extra day there each week uh, or maybe you know, after I've finished up a, a long day riding from home here, here in Hell's Kitchen, instead of going to check out that new restaurant for work or for myself, I really enjoy, you know, getting takeout from, say, this newish Thai fried chicken place called called Three Roosters. Mm-hmm. And so, so, you know, when we think of, you know, consequential changes in the restaurant industry, again, I'm not trying to sideline any of the other things you talked about, all of which are, are hugely influential and, and monumental. But I think one of the more interesting changes is, is simply how we, as as diners and people, are learning to reintegrate restaurants into our lives after a mm-hmm. very after a very weird uh, and and deadly and and economically catastrophic two years. And uh, like I said, even though we still love these places, I think we're interacting with them just a bit differently. And, uh, and that leads into me and my job. And you know, so how do I do my job differently and 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 make sure that everything I just told you is also reflective of my job. That, of course, is another challenge.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, no, that's a great answer. And it, it makes me think also about the weird way that going to a restaurant has sort of almost become politicized in a way that it wasn't before, especially with masks and not wearing masks and sitting inside and sitting outside. Like There are choices that we make now going to restaurants that seem to say something about ourselves in ways that they didn't before and i think especially during that period where you know some people would show up and refuse to wear a mask or and i think there was even a situation in new york where somebody beat up a hostess at, or a host at like carmines or something you know just crazy things were happening and it's even happening in that theater in new york right now because of um i was just reading about patty lapone uh chewing out an audience member for not wearing a mask so I mean, I'm curious in terms of navigating this. And by the way, if you're listening to this, I'm going to start asking Ryan questions about specific restaurants soon. But I do think this is an interesting conversation. So in terms of how you navigated this, when did you make the decision to start eating at restaurants again? When did you start going inside? And how did you navigate the whole wearing a mask versus not wearing a mask?
1: I started to eat out again. Or let me take a step back. Uh, I didn't eat out for pretty much most, if not all of the, all of the first year, uh, not even outside, just because uh, in as much as I, I, I did my best to follow CDC guidance, uh, the CDC at the time, it, it, it seemed to suggest that even dining outside at the time, uh, again, that was the CDC guidance at the time, as far as, as best as I remember, it was still considered somewhat of a, a, a risky activity. Uh, that said, I would, I would say I probably started dining out outside for better or for worse, Probably uh, sometime in, in December or January of, December of 2020 or January of 2021. So the, during the first winter surge, for better or for worse, I started dining inside pretty promptly after uh, I got vaccinated. Uh, and as someone right. who is uh, immunocompromised like myself, I was able to, uh, to get vaccinated pretty quickly. Uh, I believe I got my second shot on my birthday uh, on March 26th. Uh, 2021. And so in no short, no short time after that, uh, I was, I was dining out on, on a pretty regular basis indoors, even, you know, throughout the summer and throughout the successive waves. I, I only took a quick break during uh, Omicron uh, as that got pretty hairy in New York. But a- after I got vaccinated, uh, I was, I was back in restaurants and I was doing my best uh, to keep on, you know, masks as dictated by the, uh, you know, the individual restaurant, uh, or to, you know, do what other folks were doing. And so, yeah, I I would say uh, that was my own kind of personal uh, approach just to be on the side of, and I I wrote about this a little bit, you know, in as much as that dining is, obviously, it's part of life here in New York. It's it's Mm -hmm. not just a leisure activity, it's part of what sustains us. But it also is kind of a leisure activity. And it, 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 it doesn't have the same level of import as we all need to go to grocery stores to feed ourselves right. and so in as much as that holds true uh the social needs of the city notwithstanding uh I, I i do feel pretty okay about my decision to have reframed for the the bulk of the year before i ended up getting my shots mm-hmm. but i i know different people have different approaches to that and that was kind of just the uh the, the method i was or the approach i was trying to take as a uh you know, a public figure in the food world, for, for lack of a better term.
0: Well, that makes a lot of sense. And I think a lot of us sort of navigated it in similar ways. I think LA was similar. The only thing that sounds different is when you were eating outside in the winter in New York, that must have been very cold. It was not fun. <laughs> Outdoor dining in New York City in the cold,
1: especially in the pre-vaccinated era, it was awful.
0: Yeah, it sounds awful. I can't believe people did it, but I guess people were so eager to, to be out in the world and out of their apartments. I mean, that's the other thing about the pandemic in New York in terms of the restaurant culture is I'm sure people are so eager to get out of their... Um, I mean, most apartments in New York barely have kitchens. I mean, I know this because I've just been looking because Craig, my partner, is looking for a place to stay while he's editing his movie. And I literally have looked at some kitchens that are laughably small. So I feel like eating out in New York is almost a necessity for some people unless they're ordering in. So, yeah, it's, it's one of the, the trade-offs of New York. And what I'm about
1: to say, I'm, I'm not the first person to, to say it. I think this is like an understood bargain. Uh, I think one of the bargains of living in New York is that you're going to pay an obnoxious amount of money for an impossibly small amount of apartment real estate, whether by yourself or with other people. And in exchange for that, you have the expanse of the city in front of you. Mm -hmm. Some of that city is admittedly uh, off limits to us. I think of the the great penthouses and um, some of the private dining rooms and and skyscrapers and what have you. But for the most part, even (laughs) though our real estate and our apartments are limited, uh, the restaurants and the museums and the public parks in front of us are unlimited and and that's the new york trade off a little bit of space inside for a, a lot of other things to do and and while those things don't necessarily come for free i like to think uh, a lot of them are are approachable and you know one of the nice things mm-hmm. i've always said about dining in new york city and quite frankly everywhere is that even though uh, we may not be able to afford that that median you know two bedroom rent which always seems to get higher and higher and and it certainly is now as more people are going back to to work, even the fanciest restaurants in New York City, and again, this is true for a lot of other cities. You're not going to be paying, you know, thirty-four hundred dollars uh, for that that blowout dinner. Even the most expensive restaurants, like Massa, are only only in fake funny air quotes, <laughs> in a course, yeah, <laughs> one or two thousand uh, dollars.
0: See, that's very reasonable. That's very reasonable. Completely.
1: <laughs> uh, just uh, just. A, <laughs> a little place to flop by and get a $2,000 sushi. Right. And of course I say that tongue in cheek because it's in, incredibly expensive and, and the price of sushi is, is going through the roof, not just at Masa, so many other places. But generally speaking, I think the cool New York trade-off is our, our apartments might might not be so great, but everything else is pretty grand.
0: <laughs> um okay so let's get let's get to it I, now this is funny and sort of embarrassing but I get asked all the time Adam I know you love New York I know you're from there I'm going to New York where should I eat and people ask me that and I stupidly or maybe like embarrassingly like will say old places that I used to like such as you know Gramercy Tavern or um what else do I say? I guess I, I mean, there's some new places. I went to Demaca on on your recommendation and a lot of people's recommendation loved it. Um, but there, there are like the staples, like the, like the just old school places. When I, like Katz's Deli is a good example. Like the kind of things where like when I am away from New York for a long time, I want to come back. I mean, Prune, which sadly closed during the pandemic and I hope it will reopen, was definitely the number one, like old, new, like beloved restaurant that I, Absolutely always recommended to people. I mean, Union Square Cafe is another example. Like Union Square Cafe, like, I don't know its relevance in 2022, but like I get a kick out of going there when I come to New York because it feels very New York to me. So I guess my first question to you, I guess, in this regard is like, what are the old staples of New York that you would still recommend to people who maybe are coming to New York for the first time or are returning after some time away?
1: First of all, I always tell people, if you can, you know, go with what you know. Uh, just do something you uh-huh. like. Uh, at, at this point in the pandemic, it, it, it often feels like simply getting back. Whether you're from out of town or whether you're a local, simply getting back to those restaurants that we're deprived of for so long, it, it they they almost feel new again. So I would say just go mm-hmm. with your gut, <laughs> and and without being you know too uh too platitudinous about it. Um, but that said, w- when I think of the places that I'm you know excited to to get back to these days in New York City, gosh, that's a that's an interesting question. I haven't been back to Gramercy Tavern or, or Union Square Cafe in a while. Uh, I've been spending a, a little bit of time at, oh, uh, let's see. Ooh, uh you're racking my brain here. Uh, uh,
0: <laughs> Good. <laughs> well, because I guess your, your job is to go to all the new places and what's new. So it's like, it probably doesn't behoove you to go back to, although you did, didn't you just write about John George um, recently or just literally like eight minutes ago according to Eater New York. Yeah, just a few minutes ago we just wrote about
1: how they uh how, how Jean Georges dropped its uh its its lunch menu and, and and has had it dropped uh for the you know since it reopened uh, following the pandemic. And so that's that's an interesting thing, you know, from a fine dining perspective to see that you know uh during the, the mid-aughts uh, Jean Georges lunch I think for a lot of kind of young gourmands was that semi-accessible, semi-affordable place where you could go once or twice a year and build yourself a mm-hmm. short tasting menu at lunch for under $100. And it would, yeah, obviously it's still a lot of money on, a, on an entry-level salary, but it was accessible. It was doable. And the price, of course, kind of rose throughout the years. It was around $28 in the mid And then it rose up to, I think, around $68 for a, uh, for a more set menu uh, in 2019. Um, but now they have since uh, dropped that menu uh, as the restaurant now focuses on dinner, where the starting price, I believe, for a savory menu uh, or a a non vegetarian menu is about two hundred and fifty eight dollars before tax and tip, uh, or three eighteen, or thereabouts for a longer menu. There's a there's a shorter there's a vegetable menu I think for one eighty eight. But generally speaking, I was just you know meditating on the fact that you know for people who would think about you know to your question about going back to older places uh, that have been around for a bit longer, they might find some of them to be a bit more expensive in this in this era of of rampant food price inflation. But that said, you know specific to your question of you know, places to get back to. You you may not ex- expect me to say this, um, but I uh, I'm a big fan of uh, I you know I spent some time in Russia when I was an undergrad. Uh, I I studied Russian as a language and kind of either Russian restaurants or places where Russian is the lingua franca at those venues, uh, or ex or uh, restaurants that uh, are from you know neighboring regions or, or close to Russia, for lack of a better term, part of the ex Soviet Empire. Those are often very fascinating to me, and we have a lot of great ones in in, in Brighton Beach and Sheepshead Bay. So, one of the places mm-hmm. I would I would tell folks to get back to is is Nargi's uh, of Sheepshead Bay, which is a really great beach back mm-hmm. restaurant. I remember when I was living with my father in Long Beach uh, during the early aughts, uh, either when I was a grad student or when I was in my early days at uh, at, a, at a financial publication I used to work for. I remember we would, you know. Uh, I would come back home after a long day of school at work, and uh, turn on the Yankees game, pour a nice cold gin and tonic, and Dad would bring me back some uh, some Uzbek food, uh, and that was always a, a really nice. fun thing—a little, little bit of Yankees, a little bit of Uzbek—and uh, <laughs> it wasn't Nargis, but it, it was good stuff. And when I think of you know the great uh, Uzbek restaurants of of New York, it's it's hard to overlook Nargis, uh, and they have a really good they have a really good carrot kimchi slaw.
0: Wow, I've never had that. It's
1: super tasty. It's a uh, part of the the the, 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 the Korean influences. Mm-hmm. In Uzbek cuisine, which is a product of Stalinist deportations in the in the 20th century, um, but Nardis is a really good restaurant. Uh, I would I would recommend in terms of old school classics. I would recommend Cafe Kashkar, uh, which is a Uyghur uh, a Central Asian slash Uyghur restaurant in the the Sheepshead Bay Brighton Beach area, which is also really tasty too.
0: That's where my great grandmother used to live, Brighton Beach. So you know the whole Neil Simon Brighton Beach memoirs. That's in my roots, but I've never been, so I should probably go. It's, it's a fun area just to just to spend the day.
1: And they have this great uh, kind of newish place, I think a couple of years old called Tashkent supermarket, which has one of New York's longest and, and greatest buffets, uh, and you can get food from, you can get, you know, Georgian, Kazakh, Uzbek, Russian, really amazing food uh, from around that, uh, that area of the world. And you can just, you know, pick up a, a plastic tray, put a, a big pile of, I don't know, you know, norin, which is a um, kind of a central Asian style of very thin noodles. Uh, eaten with horse meat often in Central Asia, uh, served, uh, I believe, with beef or lamb here. And you can, you know, uh, enjoy that with some Uzbek, uh, sorry, with some Tajik, uh, I think it's called pandir bread. It's like a, a large floppy bread that looks kind of like a, a manhole cover for lack of a better term. And you just walk right over <laughs> to the beach and you can listen to some of the um, the Russophone performers, you know, singing and playing the guitar and, and you know, looking out over the ocean. Uh, and it's a a little bit of Central Asian food, a little bit of Russian singing. It's a it's a pretty good way uh, to spend wow. an evening.
0: I feel like you should take me there when I come to New York. We could do a field trip. Yeah,
1: for sure. I think it's I think I think <laughs> that area of New York is is one of uh, the great treasures uh, of our city, and and we're really lucky to have it. I'm ex- I would tell people to to get back to some of you know their old, if they can, you know Brighton Beach, Sheepshead Bay favorites. I, I also really want to get back to. Uh, in terms of, you know, kind of places that have been around for a while, uh, the Clover Club, uh, the great Julie Rainier Cocktail Lounge. Uh, which I never
0: went there. Where is it? it?
1: It's on, at, at 210 Smith Street. Okay. It's at 210 Smith Street, uh, just south of Atlantic Avenue. And it's a, a near and dear place in, in my heart. My grandfather, uh, on the Irish side of my family, was born at 210 Smith Street. So there was a, a shoe store upstairs called Johnny's Bootery, and that's where my great-grandmother went into labor. Of course, there was no Clover Club back then, but that's where my grandfather was born. <laughs> In, I don't think wow. it was known as Carroll Gardens back then. Uh, I'm not a, a, but anyway, so that's where he was born and that's where the Clover Club is right now. And famously, they used to have live kind of like 1920 style jazz on, on, on Wednesday nights. And so one of my favorite kind of New York things would be to, you know, do a, a dinner, uh, whether by myself or for, you know, review purposes and in the, the Carroll Gardens, Boreham Hill area, uh, maybe Lavara mm-hmm. by Alex Rij. And then I'd mosey on over to, uh, to the Clover Club oh, yeah. and get some great cocktails, listen to some, some old school jazz and just um, just, you know, lose myself in the music and the cocktails. So uh, yeah, I, I would say those those would be some of my uh, older New York recommendations.
0: <laughs> no, that's great. I mean, I feel like, I feel like it's like a point of pride to be like, like, you know, where do you eat? when you go to New York, and to have really good answers and really specific answers. I feel like that's like a thing. It's almost like collecting baseball cards. I feel like in New York was like, what are your restaurants? Like, where do you go? And like, you gave very good, very specific, unique New York answers. But I will push back a little bit and ask you like, in terms of like, okay, let's say like staying in Manhattan or Brooklyn, are, are there restaurants that are sort of, let's say like, for lack of a better word, bougie, like sort of like people who are coming in for like two or three nights who want to go out to dinner. I mean, I guess, I guess I'm guess i thinking about, I mean, we mentioned John George. So there are those like traditional four-star restaurants that have always sort of been there, like Le Bernardin, Daniel. Um, Although, I mean, are those places still relevant? Is Per Se still relevant? Like are those still even in the mix? Or is it out of mix that is what we're talking about now when we talk about going, going out to a really nice dinner? Well,
1: I, I think it, it depends on your preference. Uh, I, I've I've had some tougher things to say about Per Se in the past, and I've had some more positive things to say about Per Se as well. But if you look at their reservation books, as far as I can tell, it, it wasn't the hardest reservation to get before the pandemic. It is significantly tougher to get into Per Se these days. Hmm. So regardless of, of what your thoughts are on that style of fine dining, if they're more booked up than ever, it, it's hard to think of it as as not relevant. Uh, and so I, I I think that that's definitely a, a point worth noting. And so that would be, you know, and, and the same could be said about, say, like a, a venue like Masa, which is has been raising its prices by a few hundred dollars at a time in, in one fell swoop. It's now, if you want to sit at the sushi counter, it's $950 per person, uh, service included. And yet there's going to be a little bit of slack in demand with with prices that high, but people are, are definitely still eating there. So, yeah, the, those places are relevant. I, I would say simply uh, some of those venues can be a little bit harder for every day. I think Gourmand's to justify as an occasional splurge, uh, to be fair, per se, mm-hmm. still has there. Uh, their, their more accessible lounge menu, which I think is $245. And, and, and <laughs> you know, how accessible that that is. But it still, is, that, that, that is very, also kind yeah. of the amount that someone might might save up the splurge on, even though as, as crazy as that right. might seem to certain parts of the country. And and even Atomix, uh, when we think about whether we may or may not save up for that, that's a, a pretty expensive restaurant too now, uh, and and at that $300 price level. But if, if we thought about, you know, what's a, a generic Bougie restaurant, for lack of a better term, or, or generic kind of you know semi fancy place. Venues that come to the top of my mind are one could think about uh, Frenchie, which mm-hmm. is uh, is that the restaurant that by John Widgerman? Is it the one in Tribeca? It is in Williamsburg, I believe.
0: Oh yeah 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 yeah. yeah. What's the one in Tribeca? Oh, I'm thinking of Frenchette. Okay, so there was yeah. Frenchette and Tribeca, Frenchie in Williamsburg, but uh, okay.
1: Frenchie in Williamsburg and, uh, and and Frenchette, of course in Tribeca by some of the um, ex-Minetta Tavern uh, folks. Uh, They're doing a really nice Mm -hmm. job at serving modern kind of creative and and thoughtful French food. Uh, The same, one could say the same thing about, you know, wild air and and Contra and what- uh, Right, right.
0: Those are great places. Really
1: cool kind of in in the vein of a a modern Paris nail bistro for lack of a better term, either doing small plates or or affordable set menus. Uh, One thinks of of venues like um, Estella where uh, Ignacio Matos Mm -hmm. kind of, you know, blends, you know, who was, I believe, of Uruguayan descent uh, or from Uruguay. And he kind of blends Italian and pan-European and, and global influences into a,
0: you know, really cool small plates spare. That's my husband's favorite restaurant in New York. And that endive salad where it's like savory granola underneath a pile of endive is truly one of the most remarkable, memorable dishes I've ever had. And, and just sure. and, and, and incredible to, to look
1: at as well. Uh, Ignacio, uh, at least in the States, was at the forefront of a style of plating that often involved, and I'm, I'm still trying to think of you know, the right words for this, uh, taking a protein and, and kind of covering it uh, with foliage. <laughs> and it, 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 it can feel silly at times, but there's also something magical about having this food come to your table and it looks like you have this salad in front of you and you start to you know, eat it. And, and sometimes there's cool stuff underneath, whether it be blue cheese or maybe the, uh, you know, the, the leaves are hiding a, a larger cut of beef. It, it's simple, but I, I I really like how that Ignacio Mato's style of plating, and I know he wasn't the only one to do it or necessarily the first, but I like how his style of plating introduced just a, a, a bit of whimsy uh, into this kind of accessible style of, of small plates. Painting. Yeah.
0: And what's his uh, new restaurant that got a rave review in the New York Times? Uh, it's in Rockefeller Center, uh, but I'm uh, forgetting its Lodi,
1: name. Uh, which has some pretty right. good pastries, and they have these little pan chocolates that, in my opinion, they look like the Shai Hulu, the giant sandworms of of dune, and they're really, <laughs> they're 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 really tasty. and it's uh we think of a pan a lot. we think of you, you typically think of like a, a square rectangular shaped dome, uh, whereas he serves mm-hmm. them uh, as more of a a cylinder uh, kind of looks like a like a, oh, cool. like a fat cigarette. So I think of places like Lodi. I also think of restaurants like Aldama, which is in Williamsburg. and uh, just as a lot of us paid attention to, say, Cosme uh, by Enrique Olvera, when it opened up, I think at the end of 2014. Uh, I think a lot more of us should be paying attention to uh, Aldama, uh, which uh, serves really amazing uh, modern Mexican fare. And you know, when a lot of people start comparing New York and LA for better or for worse, because you know we're all interested in both cities. You know, people often you know talk about the superiority of of, of Mexican fare in uh, in Los Angeles. And well, yes, true. We, you know, we don't have that that same you know our our demographics are a little bit different, and that, that partly explains it, uh, as well as you know our availability of fresh tortillas in New York City. But I've I've seen a, a markedly, I think, amazing boomlet of sorts uh, in kind of modern Mexican and and, and modern Latin American fare uh, in New York these days. I, I think Aldama is kind of at uh, really occupies part of the, the forefront of that. A beautiful you know vegan. Uh, black
0: mole, those flavors just kind of stay with you Mm. for minutes at a time. Well, speaking of um, of vegan, one thing we haven't brought up yet, and I don't even know where it stands anymore because I think the chef is leaving, but 11 Madison Park. Um, That was a big controversy because they did the vegan menu and it used to be like one of the world's great restaurants. And what's your... What's your attitude towards Eleven Madison Park these days? Well,
1: I I think our our attitude is it'll it'll be curious to see how it how it evolves as they uh, adapt uh, to their 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 new plant based menu. It received some some tough write ups by a variety of critics uh, around town when they viewed that menu, among them Pete Wells of The New York Times, uh, a critic who, of course, I I read and respect. And of course, I was one of those critics, too, who had a, a reasonably tough take. Uh, on the plant-based menu, not necessarily because it was a plant-based menu per se. Uh, there's lots of, I think, great vegan food in uh, in New York right now, whether at, at vegan restaurants or at, at vegetable restaurants that have you know vegan options. I had some some pretty tough words for the service or, or at Eleven Madison Park early on in its plant-based era, uh, but of course, things are continuing to proceed, and uh, they're probably coming up on on the one-year anniversary. It'll be interesting to see how how uh, that venue evolves as it continues on. It, it, it certainly appears that uh, Chef Hum is sticking with this decision in as much as uh, I believe they, you know, they, they pulled out of, I think it was supposed to be a restaurant, or, or they had a restaurant in the United Kingdom, Davies and Brooks, which I think is no longer because you know they wanted to make that vegan as well. Uh, again, I, I say they're not critically, but oh, it's right. simply matter-of-factly. And so the, the chef is certainly sticking to his guns in terms of that being the future of food. I, I, you know I think there's something to be said for that. Uh, that said, I'd be curious to see how the how the restaurant evolves uh, and adapts, uh, both in terms of its the maturity of its own plant based cooking and the desires of uh, its clientele. Uh, but it, it it certainly seems that people are eating there and a lot of the people eating there, are uh, you know, I- enjoy that food. That's an OK thing.
0: <laughs> I missed I missed that whole I, I mean, I I went there. Really early, early on when when it first like reopened, um, and I liked it, but I missed the whole um New York menu, which I'm sad that I missed, and I missed the whole. He's making like he's like shaking his head back and forth because um, you guys can't see him. Um, and the other menu I missed was the magic menu, where that just sounded crazy, where they did magic tricks at your table. Did you have that? Uh, I, I went one for the magic menu. Uh, it was okay, um, but you know, <laughs> I love
1: magic. Uh, yeah, uh, ma- 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 magic magic is. <laughs> I, I, lo- I love I love I love sleight of hand stuff like old you know rest in peace Ricky Jay you know that style I yeah
0: him. I love Ricky Jay I have his book oh
1: man whenever whenever I see Ricky Jay in a movie I have to shout out by the way that's Ricky Jay in case you don't know that yeah I always love going through old movies where he wasn't necessarily the star he was rarely the star and all of a sudden he shows up in a particular scene I'm like oh my god that's Ricky Jay
0: a lot of David Mamet movies and Paul Thomas Anderson movies he's in it, yeah.
1: it, if you're watching a David Mamet movie there's a, a better than average chance you're probably gonna <laughs> <laughs> Probably going to run into Ricky J. Yeah, but uh, but back to Eleven Madison Park. I mean, listen, I think it's exciting when chefs pivot uh, instead of kind of you know resting on their laurels. Uh, Daniel Humm at Eleven Madison Park was was serving that uh, that lavender Sichuan duck for for so many years, and and Daniel Humm decided to go for uh, a change. You know, it's we experience that uh, all throughout life when um you know our, our our favorite rock band goes from indie to more pop, or from country to pop, or from one style to another, and and that's what Eleven Madison Park did. And so, you know, it's not like i I, I sat down Eleven Madison Park and I'm like, oh my god, I, I missed that Uh, I, I missed that duck um because that's an okay <laughs> thing. I, I think chefs, you know, deserve their creative freedom and to be able to develop themselves as individuals. You know, kind of i I think the issue that a, a lot of us were eating there were experiencing was that this wasn't necessarily at the caliber of what a, a great vegan restaurant uh, should be. But again, mm-hmm. it, they're very early on in their tenure. and so uh, I think yeah. Uh, it'll be curious to see how it evolves.
0: All right. Now I'm going to ask you the million dollar question, which I think we've avoided. I asked you like, what are the old school places to eat at in New York? And when we started, you, start, you started to talk a little bit about the high end Korean restaurants. But now the million dollar question is in 2022, where should we eat in New York? In 2022, uh, again, <laughs> the, 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 platitudinous answer,
1: the platitudinous
0: answer is you should eat uh, wherever the heck you want. <laughs> no, no, no. That's not good enough. We're paying you a lot of money to come on this podcast. We want your list. Where do we eat okay. in New York? So
1: with all the, the millions I'll be reaping from this. Yes, uh, the text and appearance. the mail, by the way. So, you were talking about, <laughs> uh, about uh, uh, Demaca before, which yes. is uh, run by uh, uh, these two guys, uh, Roni and Shintan. Those are their first names. And they're kind of at the forefront of uh, uh, kind of a, a new era of kind of regional-ish uh, South Asian cuisines, uh, specifically within India in, in New York city. And they have these three uh, or four really cool restaurants. Now they had four, I think they, they they're renovating one of them. So they have Damaka uh, in the Essex, Essex market. Where
0: I ate. And I have to just say that it was delicious, but I've never had food spicier in the sense that I almost felt like I was on drugs. Like I had that bir- biryani, is that how you say that? And it was like, I think the way I think Pete Wells wrote about it, like layers of heat, like the heat, like, and it, the way that heat like affected me was like, I was like tripping by the end of it. I was like, oh my God, what is happening? I'm sweating. Like my eyes are blurring, but I loved it. I thought it was fantastic. So it's a great. It's an
1: amazing restaurant and it's a pretty, a a near, it's, it's a wobbly experience uh, when one experiences the Scoville scale at that level uh, in a modern restaurant. And it's, it's fun to be able to have those type of you know bodily reactions that you know that that that, that <laughs> salutary, uh sweating that one yeah. experiences when when eating food that that's hot uh one of their famous dishes is the pardon me the uh, gurda i believe it's called the gurda kapura uh which is a uh, I believe, goat kidneys and testicles. Yes, I have uh, an amazing Craig wouldn't try the, 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 the kidneys have kind of like a slightly snappy texture and the testicles <laughs> have kind of like a peeled grape texture.
0: How did you distinguish the kidneys from the testicles? I couldn't tell. Uh, I, yeah. Well, like
1: I, I said, I thought, I thought the kidneys were were snappier where the testicles were a little bit softer.
0: <laughs> was it the shape though? You were looking at their shape to determine which was the kidney and which was the testicle. I, I think it was when I when I put it in my mouth. But how? But you just. But you knew. But how, just the texture. But how would you know that a testicle was chewy and that a kidney was snappy?
1: Uh, I've I've had kidneys before, and, oh, okay. and that's actually why I was a little bit uh, frightened about the dish because uh, in terms of the greater scale, when one thinks of whole or off cuts, you think of. You know, brains. You think of the soft awful, soft tissue. So you think of yeah, liver. You think of liver. You think of brains. And you think of you know thymus, and, and then you you think of sometimes the slightly chewier, more easier to take for some people awful like heart or or even perhaps skirt steak, which are more like everyday things because they're they're more muscular. Uh, I've always found kidneys to be a uh, a little bit more challenging uh, because some of the inherent funk in that dish. So I was so I was a little bit nervous. That uh, I was going to have a tough time with the kidneys, um, but I, I thought they had a—they really balanced the, the natural funk of the organ uh, with the imbued flavors uh, from uh, the both the warming spices and the the pain-inducing spices. And then, like texturally, it was nice to have that counterpart between the the snappy kidney and the softer testicle. Uh, and inside, <laughs> you know, that nice puffy bow bun—it was like a.
0: It was like a sloppy Joe of organ meat, which was really tasty. <laughs> you really should not do the ad for this, this restaurant. <laughs> sloppy Joe. I mean, I, I'm just imagining like the like quotes on the, on the ad like, for like, the movie. I mean, I guess that's not bad. Sloppy Joe of organ meat. That's good. No, no, it's, it's fair enough. But it, it, it also yeah. brings up the example of, and again, I know you're looking for restaurant recommendations
1: here, but just to think oh, yeah. slightly broadly about our craft, it's, it's always one of the challenging things uh, from a food writer's perspective to how, how, how deep and descriptive do you want to go? About a particular dish, when you know that maybe a, a, a good seventy percent of your your readers might not be too excited about that dish, and so it's <laughs> it's it's it, it's um it's a give and take. You can't necessarily begin every story about a with an organ meat, uh, yeah. especially when you when you think or know that might fall off the menu. I remember famously asking one chef because I was at his restaurant uh, and he was serving this tripe pizza. And it was the best thing on the menu because it, I mean, really, really? where else do you experience tripe pizza? And it was super thin crusts. And the tripe was wobbly and jiggly. And it had that, that very kind of you know gentle um, kind of wet hair funk that you get.
0: Oh, yeah. Wet hair funk. See, this guy is a food <laughs> wet writer. Wet hair funk but... that you get from a uh, tripe. And it was
1: absolutely <laughs> beautiful. A little bit of mint, too. Yeah.
0: I'm just asking.
1: I, I asked Jeff. I'm like, listen, this is great. This is totally going to fall off the menu yeah. after the the reviews come out. Because, and I, I don't think I use this word. It's like, this, this dish just feels like critic's bait. And it's like, oh, no, it's actually we sell a lot of these. It's like, all right, great. Two, like two or three weeks
0: after review, where's the try pizza? Ain't there anymore. It's gone. Oh, that's funny. Uh, sidebar, this is an important question. And then we'll go back to the best restaurants. Best pizza right now in New York, what would you say? Or what are some of the places that you would recommend for pizza? Uh, I really like
1: sliced pizza because pizza is part of my, my everyday life. Uh-huh. Like any New Yorker, I eat it a lot. I, I think a lot of folks go to pizza places simply because they're nearby because that's the mm-hmm. functionality of, of pizza. Yes, we will cross town for it, but I think some of the best and most important pizza
0: is simply the pizza that is close. <laughs> that makes me think of what the episode of The Office where Michael Scott is standing in front of Sparrow in Times Square. He's like, this is the best pizza in the world right here. And it's Sparrow. I will take issue with that, but I, I, I respect that <laughs> <sense>. <laughs> I,
1: I still remember when Russian exchange students came to New York City uh, with me when I was in high school. And we all took them to. It wasn't my choice. We all took them to Sparrows. And I'm like, guys, you know what? We can do better than this. <laughs> Nonetheless, uh, I really like uh, Sullivan Street and 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 Corner Slice. Take what I say with a certain grain of salt, uh, because I happen to live really close to, to those venues. Uh, Corner Slice is kind of like a just a, a neo modern slice joint. Squares, you know, uh, I believe naturally leavened uh, square pies served by the slice. Uh, they serve an amazing tomato slice, as well as buffalo chicken, uh, whereas Sullivan Street does uh, kind of Roman style, almost in the style of Altario, uh, you know, where they just snip it by the inch or what have you. Uh, and you get these nice room temperature tomato slices that the tomatoes they use uh, just have so much umami. It's like, it's just like mainlining MSG when you have their tomato crust. It's absolutely amazing. So that, those would yeah. be my my favorite neighborhood spots. In terms of destination, Hard to think off the top of my head, but I would say that uh, I'm also excited about a place called Cuts and Slices in Bed Stuy that's serving, in terms of pizza restaurants, to really get me to cross boroughs. And while it's, it's also, of course, a great neighborhood spot, I, I believe the guy's name is Randy McLaren uh, who runs it, and he serves uh, very interesting and, and and I think very well made Trinidadian or Caribbean leading pizzas. So you'll see a uh, you know hot chili oxtail on the menu, hmm. or uh, or or jerk shrimp. Uh, where the the jerk seasoning comes uh, through w- with I think amazing clarity, and where the shrimp they're not like overcooked pizza shrimp, you know, the shrimp just kind of collapse in the in the mouth. So for anyone who has had fond memories of California Pizza Kitchen, and I'm one of those people mm-hmm. that that really expanded oh, yeah, my. Pizza Horizons, and I Harry Paul yeah. Rao had a had a really a, a great essay about a California pizza kitchen as well. For for those who like that style of creative pizza, I think Cuts and Slices and Bed Stuy is a pretty special place.
0: What about uh, I've never been there, but what about is it Lucali? Lucali, you, you Luke, is it? Which, which one is it? I don't know. <laughs> Lucali,
1: it's it's super tough to get into. Uh, I think you kind of you know need to uh, you need to get there early. I remember once a couple of years before the pandemic, uh, I swung by because I was. Going to eat there as a research meal from some other for some other pizza place I was reviewing, and, and I showed up and I, I I think I showed up there at six o'clock, and I said, "Oh, sorry, it's going to be three of us tonight." You know, it's what's it look like? And she's like, uh, "Yeah, sorry." I'm like, "Pardon?" It's like we're not taking any, <laughs> we're not taking any more names. We're like not taking more names at six o'clock. I mean, I don't. I'll be honest, Adam. I don't normally, you know. Uh, my ideal dinner do time kn- do you know who I am? No, no, I, I, I was say was gonna say, my <laughs> ideal dinner time is like 9 45 p.m. So I'm like, uh, so I'm like, yeah. if you want to put us late, just go for it. She's like, no, we're not taking any more names. And I'm like, well, if you don't mind me asking, just for for I'm like, all right, I can take that. I went elsewhere for dinner. But just, you know, for reference, how early should I get here? And and, and she just looks at me and goes, Don't come on
0: Saturdays. <laughs> I actually respect
1: funny. that. You guys, just, that's hilarious it just gets so crowded but yeah uh, okay we have
0: to go we have to go back to the main conversation though because we're running out of time on this part we're actually almost at the end and we only got Damaka in under the, the hot new restaurants of 2022 so throw some more at us come on like, i mean i saw your list you made a list of 2021 restaurants so you could even pull from that yeah
1: well uh you want to go to bonnie's uh which is kind of like a new cantonese american restaurant it has one of the best
0: yes catch- i heard about one that. of the best catroy pepe
1: uh in the city uh they serve it with you know, cacio e pepe is normally, you know, uh, pasta, pecorino romano, and, uh, you know, a little bit of pasta water and, and pepper. I think that's generally about it. Maybe a little bit of butter. Yeah. Right, here, I believe they use fermented tofu and they throw a little bit of MSG in there as well. Uh, and it creates <laughs> just a, a super intense umami flavor. So I'll, I'll keep that one short, but Bonnie's is a party. Uh, also one of those places where you kind of need to show up at like five o'clock and get a seat at the bar. Otherwise, you're going to be spending the better part of your evening uh, waiting. I
0: hate that. I need reservations. I need places with reservations. I'm sorry. Oh, That's, that's fair. And
1: I know people need their plans. But in as much as so many people are, are, are going back out now and, and and there's only a fixed supply of these uh, hot new restaurants, for lack of a better term, even though, of course, we have quite a few restaurants in New York. I, I like to think that at least right now in this current era of the, the pandemic that we're in uh, or coming out of, Walking in and 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 hoping and wishing and praying for that seat at the bar is often more viable than um, making a reservation 28 days out for you know a casual mm-hmm. steak meal, which is a little bit wild. But you know that's that's how popular things are getting. But this, since I mentioned steak, I don't usually like to to say too many great things about steakhouses. But uh, Hawksmoor, uh, the London import in the Gramercy ish flat iron-ish area is, is pretty fun. I think they have one of the city's better new dessert programs. Mm-hmm. You know, Meyer lemon bomb that you kind of, you know, crack with the back of a spoon. There's some meringue elements, sorbet elements, gelato elements. It's just a whole lot of different desserts in one. And that's just one of their many desserts on this really lovely steakhouse uh, dessert menu. And they also have some pretty- That well, sounds great. Have some pretty affordable-ish steaks too. Uh, Carne Mare uh, by Andrew Carmelini. Uh, again, I haven't worked my way through the entire menu, but they have this uh, gorgonzola steak that's pretty tasty, uh, and they uh, take a, a wagyu steak and they they like dry age it in gorgonzola cheese for I don't know like a month or whatever. Really, that sounds wild. It, it is wild, and it's it, it. I think it makes intuitive sense because when you have like a, a dry aged steak, you think of those you know, slightly funky, slightly blue, blue cheesier flavors, and it, that's essentially yeah. what you get with this steak too. It's just a little bit enhanced. It's not like in your face, armpit funk, forgive the term, (laughs) but it's, it's just like that heightened level of, of blue cheesiness with a a really good American Wagyu steak. That's, you know, like when you get a good Wagyu steak, it's, I don't like to use the word mouth in the mouth. It's, it's, but it, it, when you have a good Wagyu steak, it almost feels like the wobbly beef fat is dissolving on your tongue. Uh, and it's a, Mm -hmm. it's a very beautiful and luscious feeling. uh, And that's what you get from that steak. It's expensive. I think, uh, it was a little bit cheaper when I got it. I think it's about 110 bucks right now, but it, it's pretty tasty. These are great recommendations, and, and, um, and maybe um, maybe one yeah. more. Yeah. I could yeah. go on forever, please. Uh, there's a place called uh, Three Roosters in in Hell's Kitchen. They yes. serve a, uh, I was alluding, I was mentioning it before. Uh, they serve uh pie style fried chicken, and I, I did some research whether their exact style would be the the type that you'd find on the uh, in in Southeast Asia. I'm not sure, but whatever they're doing, it, it's pretty tasty, and and they and they shower their, uh, their fried chicken, uh, with this, uh, Zob seasoning, which is, uh, I think the, the quick explanation would be, uh, imagine someone taking a pixie stick. Remember those old 1980s, yeah, you know, sure. sugary is powdery, odd looking treats. Just imagine taking the contents of a pixie stick and just shaking it all over your fried chicken. And so it's really cool because you you're eating your fried chicken and you get the fattiness and you get the concentrated chicken flavor from their really good skin. then all of a sudden you get this sweet, salty and even a little bit spicy too, Pixie Six aren't spicy, but you get this sweet, salty, powdery flavor in your mouth. It's really, really cool. Yeah, that's a good description. And and maybe one more, Taqueria Ramirez. And as much as we were talking before about our uh, up and coming uh, nouveau Mexican and and, and neo-Latin American scene, uh, Taqueria Ramirez is truly one of the next great taquerias uh, in New York. It's in Greenpoint. And they use this kind of bubbling vat of uh, organ meats and chili oil, and they put this great, either chorizo-style sausage or tripe uh, or other great things on your taco, and it's a truly amazing corn tortillas. And, and you eat it right there. You know, they hand it to you. You sit at a bar. It's almost like it feels like being at an nomakase sushi bar, but it's uh, it's for tacos. And if you eat uh, the beautiful corn tortilla and the organ meats at, at just the right moment, uh, their tripe almost has a beautiful creaminess to it. I think it's truly one of the. The great singular bites in New York right now at Takaria Ramirez
0: wow okay it's funny because you're getting great tacos and LA is now getting great bagels we have courage bagels here which Ed Levine came on this podcast and said it was the best bagel he's ever had in his life and he's he wrote the New York Eats book I mean come on yeah and I believe it was a uh, Ted was writing some great things about California bagels oh yeah uh, as well she did in the New York Times caused some controversy there it is. Uh, well Ryan this was a delight but we're not done with you Uh-oh. so you're, if you don't mind sticking around we have a little bonus podcast we do with 10 I have 10 New York restaurant questions to pepper you with that are sort of just like personal like think of them as like mad libs for um restaurants uh, but thank you i'll say goodbye to this part of the podcast and um here don't don't mute yourself just say goodbye to the audience right now and then we'll come back for the paid subscribers <laughs> thanks for having me adam All right. Thanks for listening to this week's episode. Just as a reminder, if you want to get this in your inbox, subscribe to my Substack newsletter at amateurgourmet.substack.com and you'll get not just the podcast every week, but you'll also get my videos, you'll get my recipes, my restaurant reviews, all kinds of stuff. And if you want to follow me day by day to see what I'm cooking, be sure to give me a follow on Instagram at amateurgourmet or Twitter at amateurgourmet. All right. We'll see you back here next week for another fun episode. Bye.